Lord, your name is so precious to us. We could have gone our whole lives and all of eternity and never known your name. Never had a clue that you existed. But Lord, you've put us in a place where lots of people speak your name. There are Bibles everywhere. Lord, it's, it's all around us. And Father, if we don't know you, really know you, uh, it's on us. And I pray, Father, tonight you would, you would take us deeper in with you. I pray, Father, you would open the gate to, to something that's so critical, so vital, and yet so, uh, Lord, so neglected. And, Lord, I, I pray that you would pierce our hearts and we would believe in you in such a way that it would change our behavior. And we ask that, Lord, so that you could do miracles in our land and all that you desire to accomplish in us and through us could be accomplished for your glory. So we give this night to you, and uh, we just want to tell you, Lord, we love you, and we, we just want to love you more in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am so glad to be here, and uh, I have... Uh, been praying for you ever since we kind of pushed Zach off and sent him down here to Alabama. And, uh, and I love Zach Reno. I love his wife better. She's, she is better than Zach. We all know that. And, uh, but I love them both and the kids. And, and it's just great to be with you. You know, I, Zach was, as you know, one of our pastors and uh, that planted our, our, one of our churches. And I had Zach, you know, on our staff, and that's something. I mean, just having a Reno on your staff is something. But I had two. And I don't know that's healthy. I, I, don't, I don't really know that you need two Renos at the same time. One time I was laughing with Zach before the service. One time we were having a staff meeting, you know, and everybody was in from all of our locations and and we were just uh you know it was spiritual time a lot of fun we were doing all this stuff and I had noticed that Zach and Kyle had been kind of just poking each other all all day they were just kind of you know it's like funny but not quite there's a little a little tension in the air you know and uh they're very I don't know if you know they're very competitive and so uh they're just kind of poking and we're getting ready to sit down and all of a sudden, have you ever seen these, these nature uh, videos of, about two rams that are fighting and they just go up in the air like this? And that, they just did it. They just, they just jumped each other. And man, it was on. And they were wrestling. And, you know, they were kind of, I just thought, well, this is kind of funny, but not. I don't know. <laughs> I could see the headline tomorrow, you know, two staff members kill each other at the Summit Church. But anyway, it was never a dull moment, I'm just telling you that. And uh, so I'm thrilled to be uh, with you here and, and so grateful for uh, all you guys. And Zach has told me about your church and what the Lord is doing. It's just wonderful. I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 12. Have you ever come to a place where you just literally didn't know what to do or, or whether you you just you you don't you don't know how to overcome something you're in the middle of a situation or a relationship or a problem and and it just seems insurmountable you just think that there's no way out to this I talk with people all the time who they're in a marriage that they just it's just in turmoil all the time now I'm a you know, they come on Sunday and everybody's fine. We're all fine on Sunday. And, and so everything's great. But at home, when the shades are pulled and, and the door's shut, it's not fine. In fact, there are little moments when they think, you know, I don't know if this is going to make it. I, well, we may endure for the kids, but I, it's not good. It's not, hell, it's not enjoyable. Something's wrong here. 
Have you ever been in a situation in your life where you've had a prodigal child and you've prayed and prayed and just nothing seems to work? No, none of your persuasive words, none of your arguments seem to reach their heart. You just don't know what to do. Or maybe you're in a financial situation and you're up late kind of in the middle of the night thinking about how to rob Peter and pay Paul and you've tried everything, but it just doesn't seem to work. Or maybe you've got a habit in your life that is hurting you and it's hurting other people. Maybe you've got a moral issue in your life. Maybe you've got a, a, a problem with pornography and nobody knows it and, and you kind of carry on and you hide it and you cover it, but it's eating you alive. And, and, and there are moments when you think, man, I just, I just hate this in my life and I'm gonna, I'm, tomorrow I'm going to do better, but tomorrow comes and you're right back in the same habitual responses. I mean, have you ever come to the point where what do you do when you don't know what to do anymore? Maybe it's a hurt that you can't seem to overcome. Somebody that's hurt you, some unforgiveness, maybe bitterness that's lodged in your soul, and you just kind of try to push it down, cover it up, act like it's not there. But, you know, the Bible says very clearly in Hebrews that a bitterness always springs up. It always causes trouble. It always defiles other people. In other words, hurting people always hurt other people. Is that you? I mean, what do you do when you don't know what to do? You, you just don't know how to overcome something in your life. Maybe it's not just in your life. Maybe it's in the life of somebody you love. And you love them deeply. And maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a relative. But there is something in their life and that just just can't seem to be overcome in their life. Now, what do you need when you or somebody you love has one of these insurmountable, over, non-overcomable, it seems, problems? You know what you need? You need a breakthrough. You need a breakthrough. You, you need for something to happen somehow that causes a dramatic change. That's what the word breakthrough literally means, a sudden dramatic change or deliverance. Now, the Bible is full, and the history of the church is full of breakthrough moments. I can think of times in my life where I had things in my life, and I just thought, I will never overcome this. I, and, and then all of a sudden, in the middle of a service, just like this, God spoke, I responded, something happened, and God gave a breakthrough. So I want you to think about your life, and I want you to think about somebody that, that you love that really needs a breakthrough. Maybe it's your whole family. Maybe it's a whole group of people. And, and we're going to look for just a minute at God's means of bringing real breakthroughs in our lives. Now, this story is fascinating, but before we read the story, let me just kind of sum up the whole sermon in a sentence. Are you ready? Here it is. Some things shut us up to God alone and can only be overcome by the divine exception. There's some things in life that just shut us up to God alone, and they're not going to be overcome but by the means of what I'm calling the divine exception. Now, let's pick up the story in chapter 12, verse 1. It says, about this time, this is the early days of the church. About that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Now, we just, we just read stuff like that in the Bible, and we're so familiar with it. But you <laughs> just pause and think about this for just a minute. What if it said, well, you know, the church down in Eden, we were, we were meeting together and the local mayor got, got mad and he put some of us in prison. And oh, by the way, he had, uh, he had Zach executed. That would, that would cause a little stir, don't you think? I mean, that would, something would, would, in your soul would say, man, this is serious. If I'm walking with Christ, when he said, take up your cross and die, uh, this is one of those moments. I mean, this is where we are. So this is the intensity. I know we don't feel it just kind of reading this story, but this is the intensity of this moment. I mean, it was very serious. 
And the Bible says in verse 3, when he saw, Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. It was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he'd seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. And then just this phrase in verse 5, so Peter was kept in the prison. Now, I want, you to, I want to just break up this sentence for just a minute. There are some moments in our life and some things that happen to us that just shut us up to God alone. In other words, just uh, humanly, practically, logically, there's really no way out. There's no way of deliverance. I mean, here was Peter... And the Bible says he was being kept in prison. It wasn't just a momentary. He was being kept in prison. James, his friend, had been killed. He's being kept. And he's probably, I mean, odds are he's going to be killed. And then who else? Another man in the church? Another daughter in the church? I mean, what's going to happen here? And the intensity of this bondage, if you read a little farther in this passage, you discover that Peter, uh, for some reason, Herod assigned uh, four squads, that was 16 men. I, I mean, you just think, what was this guy doing? How notorious, what, what kind of a terrorist was this that he had to have 16 people around him? Well, I think that was all by God's design to illustrate who God really is. And then he had, he was in the prison, and then there were squads outside. There were two soldiers, one on his right and run, one on his left, and to make matters worse, he was chained to each one of them. Now, you see, there's no way out of this, right? Now, he was in bondage. He was in bondage for his faith. And we get that. And that's legitimate. And honestly, it's beautiful in terms of kingdom life. But there are a lot of us that are in bondage for very different things. There are a lot of people in moral bondage. There are a lot of people in mental bondage. In other words, I, I know lots of people who are just gripped by fear. I mean, they live with fear all the time, fear of what's going to happen, fear of tomorrow, fear of what people are going to think, and their whole life, they, they just look like normal people, but their whole life, they're just in bondage to fear, or people in, in bondage to worry. They never can just have a day that you're just happy, that you're just excited about the day. It's just we're worrying about things all the time, we're burdened about things all the time, we're fearful all the time. Some people are in mental bondage, and, and they, listen, I, I've watched people live and die in that kind of bondage. Never overcome that. Some people are in habit bondages, right? Habitual bondage, just one thing or another that is hurting them, like I said, and hurting others. Sometimes it's we're in a physical distress, we've got a physical problem. Sometimes it's a tragedy, something that happened to us that we couldn't control, right? It's something you can't get out of by yourself. Now, you, you, you want to say when things like this happen in your life and occur in your life, you want to say, now, God, where are you? Well, you know what? God causes some things. God allows some things. But God never has no purpose in what's going on. And he has great intentionality in your difficulty, in your bondage, in your problem, in your struggle, in your life. He doesn't cause sin. He's not the author of evil uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But sometimes the Lord allows us to be in situations to bring us to the end of ourselves so we can find Him. And we can see things and demonstrate things, and God can be magnified and manifested in ways that couldn't happen any other way. I was one of the guys that mentored me in my life was a man named Manly Beasley. He was just a great, great man of God. And I remember him saying to me one time, he said, Bill, you know what needs are? The needs, you have needs in your life? He said, you know, you know what needs are really? They're God's messenger boys telling you that he's got an answer. They're just God saying, you're going to have needs, you're going to have problems, you're going to have difficulties, you're going to be in trouble in your life. But that's just my messenger boy. 
And he's bringing you a message that there is someone bigger than that, someone who can deliver you from that, someone that can take care of that. Now, you may not turn to him. You may, in your foolishness, just think, well, I can, I'm going to work on this myself. I'm going to figure this out by myself. That never works, by the way. But they're God's messenger boy that is telling you that, is telling you that God has an answer for you. I wonder... Do you realize this about your situation? In other words, whatever it is that you struggle with, it may be a small thing, it may be a huge thing, it may be the kind of thing that nobody in this room knows. But do you know that only God can help you in this moment? Sometimes we're just shut up to God, right? There's absolutely no other place to go. Now look at the rest of this statement. Some things shut us up to God alone and can only be overcome by the divine exception. Now, when Kyle uh, came to be on our staff, uh, he, he, he brought the most interesting Alabama dialect. I'm just telling you. And... Uh, and, and he would say something every once in a while. In fact, the first time I ever met him, he was preaching. He'd just come back from Africa. And uh, he started talking about digging whales. And I thought, I didn't know there were whales in Africa. I, I, I had no idea. I mean, literally, it took me 30 minutes to realize they were digging for water. Right? They were digging wells. And, so, and, and, then, and then he had some interesting phrases. We all have interesting phrases phrases. And one day I walked into Kyle. I love him like my own son. And I walked in. I said, Kyle, I said, I love you, right? You love me. I love you. I said, we're going to work on your English just a little bit. (laughs) You got a real serious subject verb disagreement going on. All right. I, I know that you and I both know enough English to know about conjunctions. Conjunctions are, are, are little words like, and that, that tie to phrases together, she went outside, and she fell down the hill, right? But sometimes there are what's, some words are what's, what are called oppositional conjunctions. Uh, he did this, but, right? And it shows the opposite of that. Now, God's vocabulary is just filled with oppositional conjunctions. He was lost, but... Now he has been found. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love uh, with which he loved you, has saved you and delivered you. These divine exceptions, and that's what's in this verse, and everything that happened before this conjunction and everything that happens after this conjunction are opposites because of this divine exception. Now look at verse 5. It says, but he was kept in prison, but, say it with me, prayer. But, prayer. Now that, lot, that little phrase ought to be in your story constantly. But it's very often people, believers, followers of Christ go for years and years and years and years and that little phrase but prayer is never there and so we don't see what could only happen with God but in this passage it says but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God God loves to bring divine exceptions to your situation And I just want you to notice some things about this little phrase, all right? First of all, it was personal. Their prayer was personal. But prayer was being made for him. Now, there's a a prayer that I'm not so sure, I don't know, we'll find out, but I'm not so sure the Lord really uh, pays a lot of attention to. And that's just kind of sometimes this meaningless prayer. We're not even really thinking about God. We haven't entered into his presence. And we just say, Lord, just bless everybody. Bless all the missionaries. Bless, you know, or Lord, just forgive me all my sins, right? Now, the whole 
the whole purpose of prayer, in fact, the whole purpose of God sending his son to die for you is so he could bring you back into intimate communion with him. I love how Romans 5 says this. It talks about the great work that God has done in the first part of Romans. We were dead in our trespasses, our sins. Nothing could change that. Christ came by faith. We trust in him. And then it says in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we now have peace facing God. We used to be an enemy of God, but now we can have peace facing God. You say, well, how did that happen? It says this, because we have obtained an introduction through Jesus Christ by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And I love that verse. I mean, what he's saying is, Jesus went to an extraordinary cost so you could stand in the presence of God, so you could be with God, so you could know God, not just for a moment, not just when you got saved one day, but every day, 24-7, this is prayer without ceasing. This is walking in communion. This is abiding in Christ. He wants you in His presence all the time, right? So he says in this passage, but prayer was for him. So what is prayer? What is real prayer? Well, prayer is a loop. Prayer is, I don't know what to pray for. I, I don't have the faintest idea how to really pray. And so we come into the presence of God and we worship him and we, we, we let him uh, dial us into him, if you would, and we begin to talk with him and he with us. And we say, Lord, what do you want to do about this situation? And he says, I, w- I, w- I want you to pray for this guy. I want you to do this here. And it becomes very specific. And I get the privilege of God initiating a prayer that comes through me and goes back to him. And God, listen, he loves to answer prayers he initiates. He loves to do this. He longs to do this. You say, well, why didn't he just cut out the middleman? Why didn't he just do it, you know, without me? Well, because all of this is about developing a king and a kingdom, right? And making us kings and priests before him and teaching us how to rule and reign with him. He's trying to raise you up. He's not trying just to get you from heaven to, from hell to heaven. He's trying to build you into his, the image of his son, right? So he wants us to come into his presence and pray specifically. And this, this was personal. Prayer for him was happening. I have, I have eight children. Uh, it just makes me tired saying that. And uh, we're about to have our 26th grandchild. And uh, no, I can't name all of them. <laughs> and, uh, and they're all walking with the Lord. Five of them are pastors and church planters. And the Lord's been real gracious. But we had one son that got off the beam. And uh, he got way off. And we didn't find out about it till late. Got involved in drugs, a lot of stuff, wrong crowd, all the stories. Some of you in this room uh, were that child. Some of you have that child. And uh, there's nothing uh, more gut-wrenching, right? You're only as happy as your unhappiest child. And so we were praying for him and crying out, and we were talking to him. He'd leave, and we didn't know where he was, and we go try to chase him down. I mean, all this stuff that you do. And, and we were praying, praying, praying. And one, one season, it got so intense. I just said, Lord, I, I, you got to give me a word. You got to tell me what you're doing here and, and tell me how to pray. I don't, I don't even know really how to pray for him. So just give me a word that I can stand on because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And the next day, I was reading just my normal Bible reading, and I came to Isaiah 54, 13, and it said this, All of your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. I said, Hallelujah. Or I, it was just direct to me by His Spirit. And I said, Okay, Lord, I, uh, I changed, it changed my whole thinking, my whole praying. I said, Lord, now I know what's happening He's going to be taught by you, 
and his well-being is going to be great. And Lord, if that takes 10 years, if that takes two years, this is just going to be a slice of his story. And it's going to be a glorious story. So I began to pray. And you know what I prayed? I prayed by name for Timothy. And I said, Lord, you said all of my sons would be taught. So Lord, would you teach him? Wherever he is tonight, I'd wake up in the middle of the night. I'd say, okay, Lord, teach him. Use this moment, whatever junk he's in, teach him right here. Teach him the darkness of sin. Teach him the beauty of the Savior. Just teach him, teach him, teach him. Very personal, very direct, and coming from the Lord. And about six months later, my wife came home one day, and there's Timothy sitting on the front porch weeping and said, I can't do this anymore. The Lord has just showed me. He needed a breakthrough. He needed some people praying for him. The divine exception, but prayer, was being made for him. You know, I know people who are in such a mess in their life and such bondage, and they've been in bondage for years to all kinds of stuff, and every once in a while I might say, well, would you pray for me? And they've never even prayed for themselves. They've never gone to the Lord. You have not because you you ask not. And all these things that could be happening, all this deliverance that occur, but we're not praying. But prayer was being made for him. It was personal. And look at this. It was continual. But prayer was being made. Jesus talked about this a lot because The problem with us, number one, we don't pray, and number two, we give up. We pray one time, and and God doesn't do what we think, and we just give up. We just, and and Jesus said one day, he said, I'm going to tell you a little story. It's about a widow, and she had a need, and she went to an unrighteous judge, and and she just kept praying, and she wouldn't. She just kept talking and talking, and finally the judge said, "Look, I don't fear God or this woman, but she's about to wear me out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna answer her and give her justice." And he said, "Will not the Lord bring about justice speedily to His children?" In other words, God is just waiting to answer prayer. But then Jesus said this: "But will He, when He returns, will He find faith on earth?" Are you believing? Are you trusting? Are you praying? And praying all the way through. I know you may know the stories of George Mueller, that great pastor in the 1800s in Bristol, England, and, and uh, who wanted to show the world that God was a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. And so he decided to let his needs be known to no one else except God. And he and he felt led to start these orphanages at its height. I've been there. I've seen these massive buildings that he built, only telling God about his need. And, and uh, at the end of his life, he had a list of 40,000 prayers that had been answered. Right before his death, he was being interviewed by a fellow. And, and the fellow found out that, this, that Mueller had been praying for two childhood friends for over 80 years. And, and the interviewer said, well, I guess, I guess that didn't work. I guess you're going to give up. And Mueller looked at him and said, of course I'm not going to give up. God has told me they're going to be saved. One was saved at his funeral. The other one was saved six months after he died. Prayer that doesn't faint. God is looking for Moms and dads who will pray and not faint. Mamas look, God is looking for some students who will lay hold of God and not let go, right? So God is calling us to pray. Great needs call for great persevering faith. So they prayed and they kept praying. And look at this. Look how intensely they prayed. It says prayer, but prayer was being made for him fervently. In other words, this was no little light, you know, just come in and dance in and dance out and drop something at the 
feet of the Lord. This was fervent prayer. And I want to tell you something. If your friend had been, had been murdered the day before, you'd be praying. If the church was in danger, you'd be praying like that. And here Peter was in pr- prison. They were serious about this. They knew this was a life and death matter. That's, that's a little bit of our problem. We don't realize it's a life and death matter. And it's all about eternity. And it's all about, about children and students and lives that are going to hell without the intervention of God, without but God in their life, right? Estee Gordon said, prayer is warfare. It's a fiercely contested conflict, and the enemy yields only what he must. He yields only what is taken. Therefore, the ground must be taken step by step. Prayer must be definite. He yields only when he must. Satan's not going to give up any ground, right? The means of taking this, Ephesians 6 tells us, is through prayer. That's the primary weapon. He yields only when he must. Therefore, prayer must be persistent. He continually renews his attacks. Therefore, the ground must be held against him in the Savior's name. You may have heard the story of Jim Simbla, who, uh, great Brooklyn Tabernacle Church, now that is known for its Tuesday night prayer meeting, thousands, I've been there several times, thousands that come and pray, and God just, just sets people free like crazy. And when they were beginning that church right in the heart of New York City, it's a, the area where they lived was a horrible place to raise children. And their daughter got sucked into that and, uh, and ran away from home and just lived the worst kind of life. And they prayed and prayed and prayed, and, and it didn't seem to break through. One night they were having their Tuesday night prayer meeting, and they had never, and there were hundreds and maybe thousands at this time of people uh, that were coming to that Tuesday night prayer meeting because they, they feel like prayer is the way this whole thing operates. And, and so a, a little lady came up to Jim and said, Jim, I think it's time for us all together to cry out for your daughter. And he said, well, he knew the woman, and he said, I, okay. And so they announced it. And Jim said, I have never heard praying like that in my life. He said, I was like in a labor room with, you know, 2,000 pregnant ladies delivering at the same time. I mean, they, they labored. They agonized in prayer. It's like they grabbed a hold of the, of the bars and they were not going to let go until the bars opened. And they prayed and they prayed. Jim went home and he said to his wife, Carol, he said, I want to tell you something. I, I don't know, but I want to tell you this. If God doesn't answer that kind of praying, I don't know what I believe about him. And the next day he was shaving and his wife ran up to the bathroom and said, our daughter's here. And he went down and she was on her knees and she was weeping and broken and she had repented and was coming back to the Lord. And she said, Dad, who was praying for me last night? He said, what do you mean? She said, oh, Dad. She said, I saw this vision of hell, this great chasm, this great gap, and I was dangling over hell. Dad, who was praying for me? Right? But prayer was being made fervently. Fervently. When was the last time we prayed fervently for people to be delivered? And prayer was being made fervently. Look at this and responsibly. It was made by the church. You know why it was made by the church? Because nobody else has this privilege. Nobody else has this ability to see heaven move at the prayers of God's children. If I were to give you some money and I'd say, look, I want to I give you money to build your dream home. Okay, this is just fictional illustration. And, uh, and you went to the architect, and you drew something up, and you came back and got a bid, and you realized, oh, it's, it's too much. So you, you went back to the architect, and they, they, you know, brought one room down, and then another one, and then another one, and then they took a room off, and, 
And finally, after a while, and finally you, you, you had taken a, a lot off of that house, enough to build the house. There's one part of that house that you could not remove, and that's the foundation, right? You just, you can't, you don't see it, you don't know it's there, but it's the most important part of the house, right? You've got to have, you can't mess with the foundation, I've, I, my granddad was a pastor. My dad was, all my brothers are pastors. We're going to help the world or ruin it, either one. And, and, and I've seen churches, I've pastored for 53 years. And you know what I see? I see at most churches, they have their worship ministry. They have their next generation, their youth ministry, their student ministry. Uh, they have their preaching pulpit ministry. They have... Uh, and they have a prayer ministry. Now, nobody's really interested in that. You can't hardly get anybody to a prayer meeting. And uh, there are a few people who have just a natural passion for that. And, uh, but it's taken me 43 years about to realize this. Prayer is not a side room. It's the foundation. Now, folks, listen, can I say something to you about your church and about my church? God mentions prayer 600 times in the Bible. My Bible right here has 1,000 pages. Six out of ten on average carry something about prayer. 450 direct answers to prayer. This is the way God operates. He doesn't have another way. He has chosen to restrict himself to this means of redeeming people who will come into his presence and talk to him and engage with him in communication so he can do what can happen no other way. Nobody else carries that. Nobody else has that privilege. Nobody else can go into the halls of heaven and do that but you. And so when the pastor calls a prayer meeting, is there something inside of you that says, well, this is the foundation? Or is there something that says, well, it's just a prayer meeting? I've been to prayer meetings. I don't have to go to the prayer meeting. I want to watch, you know, the next episode of whatever it is. Or is there something in you that says, this is my responsibility and nobody else's? If you went home tonight and, and all of a sudden you woke in the middle of the night and there, was, there, were, there were criminals that were, had axes and shotguns and, and they were breaking down your door and you saw them and you screamed and you hollered and you went to call 911 but then you happened to look out the window and you saw that there were 15 policemen just standing across the street with their arms folded. Now no policeman would do that, right? But just think about this. Can you imagine somebody who has the authority and the ability to save your life and they do nothing? It's our responsibility. It's our joy to pray. But it's our responsibility to pray. And here in this place... These people decided our brother is being kept in prison and we're going to pray. And we're going to pray fervently. And we're going to pray persistently until God moves and does something about this. R.A. Torrey said that uh, he went up to a little town in Maine and he said there was, there was a, a, a group of Laymen up there, and the churches were dying, and the pastors were not real strong, and a group of laymen got together, and they said, what are we going to do? Our town is going to the dogs, and what are we going to do? And one man said, well, we could pray. We could get together and pray. And so they, got, they didn't know what they were doing. They got together, and they said, well, how do we pray? And he, this literally, what happened? They said, well, who's the most lost man in our city? The hardest case in our city. And they said, well, immediately all of them said, well, it's old so-and-so. So let's pray for him. 
And they all together fervently, persistently began to pray for that man. And guess what happened? God saved him. He got saved. Then they said, who's the next most lost man in our city? And they prayed for him. And Tori said, I came back a year later and 200 adults had come to faith in Christ. Why? The church picked up their responsibility and did what we should have been doing all along. They prayed. The divine exception kicked in. But prayer was being made fervently by the church. And what was the direction? To God. I was on a plane one time and I was sitting in, in the plane and I, I looked across the aisle and there was a guy diagonal and he, uh, to me, and he had this real expensive suit on and snappy shoes and a Rolex watch and reading this high-powered business meeting. I don't know why I thought this. I just thought, I bet he's a powerful man, you know, probably runs a business somewhere, just probably a powerful man. And then this thought hit me. I think it was from the Lord. I wonder who the most powerful person is on this plane. And I, I didn't go two seconds, and instantly the answer came to my mind. The most powerful person on this plane is the person who prays, right? Because prayer brings God into the equation. And I turned behind me, and there was a young kid. He had tattoos and dreadlocks, and I thought, maybe it's him. Could be that guy. Maybe early on, he's, he, he's come to understand this. And then I looked up in front of me, and there's a little silver-haired woman. I thought, probably her. Because <laughs> time has a way of helping you understand this a little bit. The most powerful person is the person who connects to God and calls in what only God can do. And when we do, breakthroughs happen. Just breakthroughs happen. That's what happened here. I don't need to read the story, but you, you know it. He, he was just in his cell. All of a sudden, an angel came. The chains dropped off, carried him out. A divine garage door opener opened the gates by themselves, and he was set free. He goes home to the prayer meeting, and uh, the little servant girl, can't believe it, slams the door in his face, and... Uh, and they came back and saw him, and they were all amazed. Just amazed, because God had accomplished a breakthrough. Several years ago, in our church, uh, we were, I just felt we needed the Lord. We just needed, I needed the Lord. And so, that January, I just went on an extended fast well, that really helps me, and I, I, uh, I just said, Lord, I just want to fall in love with you all over again. I just, I just need you, and sure enough, it happened, and it was just a glorious, I mean, just a life-changing moment, and that fall, we decided to call the whole church to a 40-day fast. Now, pastors, you know, we do these things, and, and the Lord leads us, but a lot of times, everybody doesn't cooperate, <laughs> but what was beautiful was everybody did it. Everybody just started fasting, food, media, whatever it was. You know, I didn't care. But they just started pursuing the Lord. And it was intense. And, and, and people after that fast said, man, what's going on at the summit? I said, man, it just feels like there's gasoline on the floor just waiting for a match. And we came into the next January, and, and we just felt led by the Lord to, to gather every first Monday of the month and just cry out to God that he would send a movement, a revival, a spiritual awakening. And, and I came to that prayer meeting and instead of having the normal, you know, routine crowd, there was a lot of people there. And boy, they really prayed. And I told our staff, I said, something's, something's up. The Lord is about to do something with that. We came to that March and we started teaching a series on the Holy Spirit. And on the first week of April, I was preaching on quenching the Holy Spirit. I know you all talked about that some last night. I'd never preached on that. And, you know, it says 
Quench not the Holy Spirit. Quench means something's already moving and you stop it, right? Like a fire's burning and you, and you put cold water on it. Don't quench the Spirit. And then the rest of that verse says, don't despise, treat lightly when God speaks. Examine it carefully. Spit out the bad and hang on the good. But don't, when God talks, don't treat it lightly. So I was explaining this to our people that Sunday morning, and, and I just used this illustration. I said, let's say on Monday, when I re- get started preparing for the next Sunday, let's say I'm preaching on a passage about praying for lost people. And, and, uh, and all of a sudden in my study, this happens to us every once in a while, you just get overcome by the Lord and by the truth that he's showing you and just grips you. And I tell the staff the next day, hey, we need to really pray. I, I believe God really wants to say something to our church. And that just grows. And I tell my wife, I don't know what's going on, but I just think there's something God really wants to communicate to our church. And let's say the illustration, I come on Sunday morning and I just preach. And a lot of times uh, or sometimes for us pastors, a sermon will turn into a message, a real word from the Lord. Let's say it's that kind of thing. All of a sudden, everything gets quiet. People are listening. God is speaking. We get through the service. It's kind of sober. People walk out and say, Bill, I've never heard you preach like that, and I've never heard God speak to me. Oh, he convicted me so much. And we talk about it for a moment. And then they go get in their cars and they go home and they don't make a single adjustment in their life to pray for lost people. Guess what happened? The head was speaking to the body. The body that he bought and paid for with his blood. The body that he loves the the only body that he has in this world that moves through this world and he was calling his children to mobilize in prayer for lost lost people and he doesn't do things without purpose and who knows what he wanted to do maybe he wanted to save hundreds of people maybe thousands of people but we quench the spirit so I was just teaching on this and I was about halfway through my message and and the Lord said to me, just stop, you're done. And I'm arguing while I'm preaching. I said, Lord, I've, I've got a really great second half to this message. <laughs> and the Lord said, don't quench the spirit. And so I just stopped and I said, folks, I don't, I don't know what's going on here, but I've, I have more on my notes. I think that's all I'm supposed to say. And a retired missionary, as if it was on cue, he popped up and he cried out, this doesn't happen in our church, He cried out, we have got to obey the Lord right now. And he's weeping and he's pleading with the people. And I'm just standing there, you know. And then people just start streaming down the altar. And they're weeping and they're getting right with each other. And husbands and wives are coming down. And I I stepped down because I had put a microphone for four weeks Nobody knew why it was there, but I thought, I just felt like if God shows up, the church is going to need to express itself. So I went down there by that mic, and I said, folks, I don't know what all the Lord's doing. Here's the deal. Just don't quench the Spirit. If He tells you to do something, don't hesitate. Don't excuse it away. Just obey Him. He's good. He's a good leader. He knows what's best. Just obey Him. And a little lady came up and said, can I say something? And she shared something. It was real sweet. I thought maybe that's the end of that. And then I looked up and there was another person. They said, can I share something? And they shared. People are coming down to the altar. All this stuff is happening. It's not crazy. Nobody's jumping pews. You know, it's not, it's not weird. It's just this sweet, strong moving of the Holy Spirit. And I looked up and there was a line. And we went past the 12 hour, past the 1 o'clock hour past the two o'clock hour and uh, I remember on that day one man a C-130 pilot was in the booth and he comes down he said can I say something and he said I am a believer but I have not been baptized since my salvation and I know I need to be baptized and he said we have this portable baptistry up here on the stage 
We'd used it that morning, and he said, every time I see somebody baptized, the Spirit says, go down there and be baptized. In my pride, I just wouldn't do it. And then he's weeping. He says, please forgive me. What have I done to this church that I have quenched the movement of God in this church? And he said, I'm not going to do it anymore. And he starts walking over the baptistry and taking his shoes off. And I thought, if I don't get over there, he's going to baptize himself. <laughs> he comes out of the water. Everybody's applauding. And another woman runs down the aisle and said, me too. And then another one in their street clothes. This is not normal behavior for the Summit Church. And another one and another one. And then we said it was about 3 o'clock. We sense it's about time to maybe just stop. And we had a regularly scheduled prayer meeting, first Monday prayer meeting. The next night I said, folks, just come tomorrow night. Let's just see. But here's the deal. Just don't quench the spirit, please. And the next night we came and it was just packed. And that meeting lasted about four hours. I, I just can't, it was just a big prayer meeting. I just can't tell you what, what God was doing. There was no preaching. There was no, we didn't do a lot of music. The, mic, the altar was open. There was always people at the altar. There were people coming to the mic. I remember one girl comes to the mic. Her name was Bailey. She said, I'm a Christian, and my husband and I got married, and within 30 days, my husband shot himself in my presence and committed suicide. And she said, I'm so angry at God, and I don't want to be angry at God, and I don't know how. I can't, I can't get over it. And I'm telling you, 40 women came around that woman and prayed heaven down. I, 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 to that point, I had never heard praying like that. And, and they got through, and people are responding, and, and this, her little friend comes up and says, Bailey doesn't have a car. Can we do anything about that? And so I reached and got an offering plate, and I put it on the, the, the uh, stage, and I said, Bailey doesn't have a car. Anybody wants to do anything about that? Here's an offering plate. People just start coming by and just emptying their pockets out, you know. And then this guy walks in. He hears about it. He comes down. He says, can I say something? He said, yesterday my dad gave me the keys to a Ford Explorer and told me to give it to somebody. He said, would this work? <laughs> so Bailey comes down. We give her the car and we gave her the money. I think it was like $4,000, enough for gas for like a week or so. And <laughs> it was just unbelievable. And people were coming to be saved in their street clothes and baptized. And, and, and we said, well, we can't stop. Let's meet the next night. And then the next night and the next night. I remember one night, I think it was 14 people were saved in their, and baptized in their street clothes. And it just happened. And they were, then they started going and bringing people off the streets, right? And I, I wish I had time to tell you all that God did. That went on for five solid weeks every night except Saturday. Now, what was that? It's just God doing what God does when we give him a chance. It was his church crying out and cooperating with him and not quenching the Spirit. And God, the miraculous things, the amazement that came. And I said, I said to the Lord often, I said, Lord, why did you let us see this little mercy drop of revival why did you let us see that? He said, Bill, I just want to show you, remind you, I can do this. If, if the same measure of activity had come to all the churches, there's 600 churches in central Arkansas, the same thing had happened for five weeks in those churches that had happened in our church, we would have seen over 30,000 people saved in, in five weeks. Now you say, well, that couldn't possibly happen. If you say that, you don't know your revival history right God has done this many times when he finds people who are so hungry for him and for a breakthrough in their life or the lives of those around them that they utilize the divine exception but prayer So what about Enon? Enon. 
What about you? I mean, are, are you really in your life? I, we're just all folks here. I've, we've grown up in the church, many of you. Are we content to go the rest of our lives never seeing what God could have done if we had prayed? So would you bow your heads for just a moment, close your eyes. I'm going to ask the pianist to come and begin to play. And I'm going to ask the pastors and counselors to come even right now across the front here. But, but here's, here's, the, here's the question. Do you need a breakthrough? Does your family need a breakthrough? Does somebody you love need a breakthrough? And I'm going to ask you before we even stand, I'm going to ask you to just get up and come to this altar and cry out to the Lord. Maybe you need to come to one of these pastors and say, I need you to pray with me. I need a divine breakthrough in my life or in the life of somebody that I love. So, Father, in this moment, I, I don't know what you want to do. Lord, that's up to you. But I just pray that we would, not, we would not quench what you've been saying to us tonight or what you've been saying to us all week. I pray that we'd say yes. I pray that we would respond. And I pray that we would come. So would you stand with heads bowed and eyes closed right now? If you just need, just come join these that are already coming to the altar. Come on. Join people who are coming. And just right there at that altar, out loud, just start praying. Just start crying out to the Lord. Maybe some of you see somebody at this altar and you want to come and gather around them and pray. Pray with them. Pray for them. Nothing greater than that. Pray fervently. Somebody here that has an issue that nobody knows about and you just need to tell somebody. You really do. You need to bring it into the light. It may be embarrassing. It may be... But you just need to tell somebody. You need to come down to one of these pastors and say, Look, I've got this thing. been going on for a while. I can't seem to shake it. I keep thinking I can overcome it. i got to have God. I need, I need prayer to bring God into the equation. I cannot, oh, I need a breakthrough here and I'm, I'm ready for God to do what only God can do. Just come on. somebody standing here that your heart is burdened for, that you just love them and you want all of God to be experienced in their life. You want to just walk across the aisle and just go over to them, put your arm on them, just pray for them. Just pray for them. But prayer was being made for him by the church to God. pray by name for people that are here at this altar you don't know the issue but you are the church 
We hold the keys. We have spiritual authority. Would you pray that real, substantive, life-changing breakthroughs would happen at this altar? Just pray for them right now. God speaks to your heart. As we just continue to pray for a moment, I'm going to ask us to do something a little unusual. You're not comfortable, that's okay. But wives, would you turn, lay your hands on your husband's shoulder if he's here. If he's not, you lay your hand on his shoulder in your heart. And would you pray for God's greatest breakthroughs to come to his life? Would you do that right now? Just pray for your husband right now. Everybody needs more of the Lord. And then when they finish, husbands, would you pray for your wife? Just cry out for the things that you know God longs for her life. going to ask some of you parents who feel prompted to go to your children or children to your parents and just pray for each other for a moment. Just leave where you are, head to your kids and pray for them. Pray heaven down over them. begin to flow when we get into the presence of the Lord.